That's where the people lived. And their lives in Goshen had been reduced to bitter slavery. Pharaoh had made the, enslaved them because they were a threat to him. He was afraid because of the number of people. And, um, and so he made their lives bitter with, with slavery and, and hard work and brick and mortar and working in his mines and building his cities. And he oppressed the people of God. And they began to cry out to God for a deliverer. Now we saw last week, enter Moses on the scene. By faith, when he was born, his parents saw that he was a beautiful child. They hid him and um, they ignored the edict of the king, which was to take the, the male babies, Hebrew babies, and have them thrown in the Nile River. And they took him and they hid him in an ark in, in the Nile, on the Nile River. And there we read and in... Uh, Exodus chapter 2, that when Pharaoh's daughter found him, she adopted him as her own son. She took him into the home of Pharaoh, and she raised uh, this young Hebrew boy as a prince of Egypt. It's a great story. It's awesome. And there Moses was educated in the schools and in the universities of Egypt. Uh, He became a somebody. The Bible says in in Acts chapter 7 that he was a man mighty in his words that he was a man who was mighty in his deeds. He was a prince of Egypt. And really, he was. He was a somebody. People responded to this man. He had charisma. He had character. He had power. He had position. He had authority. The Bible says he was beautiful. And in the midst of that, uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, that there was a struggle for him, that he neither identified with the people of Egypt nor the Hebrew people. There was this identity crisis and dilemma in his life, and he struggled to know where he fit. And as he wrestled through that identity dilemma, the Bible says, by faith in Hebrews chapter 11, he chose to identify with the people of God, the Hebrews. And though he had not been taught how to serve God and live for God since he was a little child being weaned by his mother... Uh, as he began to identify with the people of God, he began to let go of some of the things of the world. You had that same thing happen in your life. As you began to identify with Jesus, you begin to let go of certain things in the world. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin. And Stephen, in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, actually Uh, paints this picture that Moses had a great sense in his life that he was called to be a deliverer, even before he had met with God. And so he, he, I would say, you know, saw his life as being designed by the hand of God. And so at the age of 40 years old, as he's beginning to identify with the people of God, as these changes are happening in his life, and he sees a Egyptian taskmaster beating one of his Hebrew brothers, uh, Moses takes the situation into his own hands. Uh, We said he went before he was sent. And in his flesh, he rose up to uh, deal with this issue and he murdered the Egyptian slave master. And the problem was that although Moses may have seen himself as a deliverer, the people of Israel did not yet see him as their deliverer. And they rejected him. 
And the crime of murder in Egypt being a capital punishment, uh, a, a capital offense, guilt, you know, and, and conviction of that was punishable by death. Pharaoh sought, the Bible says, to kill him. And so rejected by Israel, rejected by the house of Pharaoh, rejected by Egypt, uh, Moses uh, flees into the desert. And it's just interesting to think about this guy. He's got, he's got all the benefits of the world. That's Moses, right? He has all the benefits of this physical world. And yet, because of an act of his flesh, he is reduced to flight into the desert. He flees across the desert of Midian. And we read in, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, verse 15, he says this. When, it says this. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So 40 years old, Moses finally stops in his life, and he sits down by this source of water, this well. Now we read in verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled their troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. Now thus far in the, the Bible, if you go back into Genesis even, a well is kind of an interesting place. In fact, a well in the Bible is a good place to meet a girl. And, uh, you know, it seems to be this place where courtship starts. You remember that Abraham sent his servant, Eliezer, and he said, go find amongst my brothers a wife for my daughter, Isaac. And so Eliezer went, and there he met uh, Rebecca at the well, and he and he helped her at the well. And so, you know, I don't know if it was legend or what it was in those days. Uh, this priest of Midian, we're going to, he, he, here he's got seven daughters. He's hoping to marry them off. And so what does he do? Off to the well, girls. Off to the well, okay? Feed my flock, water my flock. Now, this priest of Midian, his name was Ruel. That name means, uh, he's also called Jethro in the Bible. That name Ruel means friend of God. And so, you know, we don't know a lot about Moses' future father-in-law, but we do know this. The scripture seems to allude to this, that he was a monotheistic priest in a culture and in a world that was very polytheistic. And in some sort or fashion, uh, he worshiped the true living God, the God of Abraham. And the reason why we know this is that Midian, the land where he was living, Midian was actually a descendant of Abraham. Uh, Genesis chapter 25 tells us the story of the death of Abraham's wife, Sarah. And after Abraham buried his wife, the Bible tells us that he took another wife and she bore him a number of sons. And Midian is of that descent. So he's from the line of Abraham. Uh, Ruel is a, dis a distant descendant of Israel, a, a distant relative of Israel. And he's monotheistic. He's called the friend of God. He's a worshiper of God, and he, he seems to be some sort of, I don't know, tribal chieftain in that area or whatever. Now, you know, I just think about that. I, I think, well, if you, you know, if you were apply, to apply the wisdom of this world to this story of Moses, you'd think, wow, what a coincidence. This guy flees for his life across the desert, and lo and behold, he finds himself, you know, with a household of people who believe in the living God. But we know this, with the people of God, there's no coincidences. 
There's no such thing. This is the sovereign hand of God upon this man's life. Moses is led to a family where there is some sort of structure and some sort of worship of the true living God. And in this home, he's going to learn about the living God. And lucky man that he is, Ruel just so happens to have seven daughters. Okay, so this is a good scene for him. Things are looking up in a certain sense in the desert. Okay, and here these girls are. They're at the, they're at the well. They need their father. They're watering their father's uh, flock of sheep. And these shepherds rise up against them. And I just love the picture. It says this, Moses stood up. He saved them and he watered the flock. He, he's growing. He, he has a heart of a deliverer. You can see that. It says he was sitting by the well. Now it says he stood up. He saw this situation and he got himself involved. Now verse 18, it says this. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Now, we're going to see about Moses is that Moses is going to learn to work here. Moses is, he's a prince of Egypt, okay? Drawing water and looking after the sheep, that's, that doesn't come with the job description of being a prince, right? I mean, somebody else drew his water. Somebody else filled his glass. And uh, someone else looked after his sheep and did all that work. And so, you know, look after sheep? I don't think so for an Egyptian. Uh, Moses is going to learn to work. It says, verse 20, Ruel, he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. So, you know, where's the guy? Thought I was going to, you know, marry off one of these girls. Go get the man and bring him to our house. He sounds like a man of character. Verse 21. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zephora. And she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. And he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Interesting. Moses was content to dwell with the man. No palace. No servants. No position. No authority. Really this is a new life of obscurity for this former prince of Egypt. You know, he, like I said, he'd been a somebody in Egypt. In Midian, Moses is going to learn to be a nobody. Uh, and there God would take him through the school of the desert. You know, it's just interesting to think he, he had all the education of the world and, and God's not going to let that go to waste. But Moses needs to be stripped of the confidence that comes from the training of the world. He needs to be stripped of the confidence that comes uh, from having power and having position and having some letters before or after your name. Not, not that any of those things are wrong, but they are not what the man of God is to put his confidence in. Position, power, or letters, or this or that. And Moses is going to learn to be content in the desert. You know, I was just thinking contentment. I mean, it's a good picture for us that contentment really has nothing to do with possessions or things that you own or positions of power and authority and all of these things. Contentment has everything to do with the heart. And Moses made a choice in his heart. I'm going to be content in this situation. And so as Israel's rejected deliverer, he, he takes a bride from among the daughters of Ruel, a Gentile, and her name is Zephora. Now, again, last week we talked about this. 
that in the Bible, there's lots of beautiful types. And I love this, this picture or this pattern that we see here in Moses and his marriage to Sephora, a Gentile. See, Moses was rejected by Israel and Jesus was rejected by Israel. In his rejection of, of Israel, Moses went and he took for himself a Gentile bride. Jesus was rejected by Israel and he went and he took for himself a Gentile bride. We're it, the church people. But it gets better than that. Because Moses' bride actually disappears from the pages of the story of Exodus for a little while. Did you know that? That when it's time, we're going to see in Exodus chapter 4 that there's going to, there's going to be this kind of gory story between Moses and his wife. And his wife is going to call him her bridegroom of blood. It's interesting. Jesus is our bridegroom of blood. He's purchased us, his church, with his blood shed on the cross. And when Moses goes back to Egypt and God begins to pour out his judgment on Egypt and to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, Zephora disappears from the story. In fact, she doesn't come back into the story until the world, Egypt, has been judged. Moses leads the people out. They cross the Red Sea and on the other side of the shore, Zephora meets her husband again. Just like Jesus, my friends. The church in the days that will come ahead when God brings judgment on the world. Church is not going to be here. We're going to be in heaven. And we're going to meet with the people of Israel and our Savior on the other side of the shore. It's a pretty cool shadow or type in the picture. And so in, in the story. And so Sephora bore Moses a son. She named him Gershom. Uh, he named him Gershom, which means stranger. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a sojourner. I'm, a, I'm an alien here. Now, between verses 22 and 23, 40 years pass, okay? He's 40 years old when he leaves Egypt. 40 years now go by in the desert, and this man is now 80 years old. It says in verse 23, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I love, that is awesome language right there. And so we got the desert. Moses is on one side. God's preparing his man. On the other side of the desert in Egypt is the people of God suffering, groaning, in slavery, in bondage. The Pharaoh who wanted Moses dead was now gone and in his place is a new king. And life has continued in bitter slavery for the people of Israel. And like I said, they're, they're groaning. But here's the beauty. It says God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, Israel's situation was desperate it was hopeless. And I don't know, there's something about desperate, hopeless situations that appeals to the heart of God. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, these people had been calling out to God, but you know, the reality was is many of them were 
involved in idolatry. They were worshiping the gods of Egypt as well as the, the, the true living God. And you know, it, it's kind of the same picture for us in many ways. You know, so it was when God saved you and I. We, we didn't merit salvation. Our lives were worshiping other things. We were in, having a love affair uh, with this world and with our sin. And we were not worthy of salvation. And we worked for sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And death was to be appropriately given to us. And so our salvation, like Israel's salvation, is wholly rooted in the grace of God. God didn't see good in Israel, but he heard their cry. He remembered his covenant. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. You know, Isaiah says this about Jesus, that he was a man despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus understanding his people. And God knew the people of Israel and God knows your suffering. And you know, when we call on God in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our sorrows, this is the beautiful thing about God. He listens. He remembers his covenant with you through Jesus Christ. He remembers that. And God acts. God sees. God knows. And for the people of Israel, in their groaning and in their cry and in their bitter life, on the other side of the desert, God's been preparing his man. It's a beautiful, it's awesome. Now chapter three, verse one says this. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So 40 years, 40 years have gone by that this guy has been in the desert uh, looking after sheep, learning to care for sheep, learning to survive in the wilderness, learning to navigate his way through the desert. Sounds like God's preparing him for another journey into the desert, right? And spend 40 more years there with the people of Israel. He knows this land. He's, he's learned to, you know, follow his annual path of migration with his sheep, following the sources of water, going to the place where there's, there's pasture. And here he is, he's, he's there, he's a nobody, he has no title, he has no possession, he doesn't even have his own sheep, not even his own sheep, he's looking after his father-in-law, 40 years ago by, this guy has nothing, he is nothing, he's a nobody. And as he cared for Jethro's sheep and lived in the wilderness, and I think, you know, looked at the stars at night, and looking at those same stars that Abraham uh, looked at, making the annual circuit with his sheep, he comes to the, mount, the mountain of Horeb. Now Horeb is actually a range. And in that range, there's one mountain called Sinai, uh, where he's going to meet with God. Eventually, the people of God are going to come to worship and they're going to be given the law. But here's this man, I would say, he's got murder on his conscience. Uh, he's rejected by his people. He's a former Egyptian general. Uh, he's educated. But he's come to a place in his life where he's content with obscurity. He's content with nothing. 
He has been schooled by the desert. You need to see this in the life of Moses. He's wandered. His life, I would say, is reduced to the mundane, you know, to stars and dirt and sheep and tumbleweed. His life of mundane, the mundane. And he's found contentment in the place of defeat. You know, I would say this about Moses. God has produced in Moses that which university and all the schooling of the world could not. You know, Exodus chapter 2 like we saw last week, and like we've just seen a little bit here, it tells the story of his, the failure of the man, his rejection, his fleeing. When we get to chapter four, we're going to see his restore, restoration and his renewal. But sandwiched between chapter two, the rejection and the defeat and the restoration and the renewal is this encounter with God that we're about to read. I would say Moses had known about God. Moses had information about God. I'm sure he and Jethro sat in the tent at night and drank their coffee and talked about the things of the Lord. I imagine that when Moses was beyond earshot of other people and he was out in the desert or laying under the stars at night, that he talked to God, that he maybe asked questions of God, that, that he prayed but there seems to be this picture in this guy that he was, it was just information. It was just head knowledge. The man himself had never encountered God. The, he'd never had the experience where the knowledge and the information had made the 18 inch journey from his head into his heart because he'd met the living God. He lived on the promises of God to others. He lived on the faith of others. He collected information about God and he was lacking a personal encounter with God. And I would say, you know, many people are like Moses. And you know that there will never be change in your life until uh, you have a personal encounter with the living God through the person of Jesus Christ. And so the desert, it's mandatory curriculum in the kingdom of God. Did you know that? It's like 101. Desert 101. It's a, and it's a, it's a custom, ta- it's like a custom tailored suit. It's a custom tailored lesson uh, for, for the person who is being made into the man or woman of God. And Moses has had a custom tailored lesson. He's a slow learner. It's 40 years. It's brutal. Maybe you've spent 40 years in the desert so to speak, spiritually. Now, back in Egypt, God's people, they've cried out. God's seen, God's heard. God has his man prepared. The only thing left in the equation is this, the unfulfilled encounter with God. And so here it comes. Verse two. It's good stuff. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And get this. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire and out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, 40 years wandering in the deserts of Midian. I, like I said, that's boring, man. That's mundane. That's tumbleweed and dirt. And so something that was a nice change of pace caught his attention. Oh, fire. Look at that. And I didn't start that one. Something's burning over there. 
And so he makes his way to the fire. It grabs his attention. And men like fire. They like to burn things. And so he goes to check that out. And there in the fire, he sees not just the fire, but it's a bush on fire. And in the midst of the fire is a person. And while the bush burns, the crazy thing is it's not consumed. And verse 3 says, and he said, I'll turn aside and I'll see this great sight. Why is the bush not burned? When the Lord saw that he, he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Angel of the Lord is in the bush. He's standing in the midst of the fire. He calls to him from, with, from out of the fire. And he says, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And Moses turns aside to see what's going on in the midst of the fire. And it's just this amazing picture. It's a bush. It's a fire. There's a person, an angel, the angel of the Lord standing in the midst of the fire. Moses is called by name. Now, like I said, this dude's stuck in the rut of life. Monotony, repetition, routine. And you know, the Christian life can become that. Even for those who have had this personal encounter with God, it's the information has moved from being head knowledge to heart knowledge and you meet Jesus. And we're excited about Jesus and we worship Jesus and we love God and we love the people of God and we want to tell people about Jesus. And as time goes by, we begin to trade in our worship of Jesus for working for Jesus. And rather than being worshipers, we become workers. It's kind of like having your tires stuck in a rut when, when you're driving the car. And the joy of knowing Jesus is traded for the repetition of the Christian assembly line. Praise 106.5. Conferences, books, this, that, Saturday to Sunday, repetition, study over here, do, 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 do. Working, working, working for the Lord. The vicious cycle of habitual sin sets into our lives and we fight that fight and the defeat and slowly the idolatry and the worship of the things of the world slides into our lives. And we come to church and we're disappointed and we're frustrated and we feel like our lives fail to reflect the Jesus that, that we want to reflect to the world and to our, our neighbors and we slip into this powerless, emasculated, Christian living where the simple longing to just know God is gone. Where it was just, remember when it was new? It was about knowing God and it was about being known by God. It was first love. And monotony just traded the worship for work. And in the rut of life, God is calling you. And like Moses, we need to take time where we turn from the work, leave the sheep, and worship. Turn to the place of encountering God. I think, he, did you call me? 
Or did I just wake up for no reason? It's two o'clock in the morning. Did, did I hear my name? Because the alarm's not set for another hour. God, I, I'm working and look at the beauty around. God, are, are you calling me? I'm in a rut. I've been working. I've been tending the father's sheep, but this is a desert. I'm dry and I'm thirsty and I'm ready to worship. See, the solution for us is the same solution that that Moses needed. It was an encounter with God. It was to hear his voice. It was to hear him say your name. It was to, the need was to, for him to experience the sweetness of the presence of God, to have your fears just flee as the spirit of God ministers to you, to have your heart overcome by his goodness and by his grace for the divine exchange to happen where anxiety flees and the peace of God rules in your heart and in your mind. And so the Lord said to Moses, turn aside. He turned from the work and he he turned to discover that he's about to worship. And the Lord said to him in verse five, don't come near. Do not come near. Take your sandals off for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And God said to him, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. You know, this is the only, this is the second time in the Bible where the word holy is used. The first place is in Genesis chapter three, where it says this, when God made the seventh day, he rested from his work and he called that day holy. The seventh day was designed for a purpose by God, as we know. It's a day of rest. It's a day to meet with God. And the Lord said, To Moses, take off your sandals, leave the world behind, take off that which has carried you according to this world, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, now what made that place holy? Was it it because God was there that it was present, that it was holy? Well, the reality is this, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. There's nowhere where God is not. So what makes a place holy? What makes it holy is this, is that meeting happens there between God and between his creation. That makes it for a holy place. And you know, I would say holy places can happen anywhere in the routine of life. You know, in your closet, at your kitchen table, behind the steering wheel sometimes of the car, at church, a holy place is where God meets his people. And Taking off your shoes as as Moses was instructed to do is a sign of courtesy and respect. As we know, when you enter someone's house, you know, you you go into their home, you you take off your shoes as a sign of respect. And Moses is told to take off his shoes. And I think there's a number of things going on here that are really awesome. I, I think the Lord's saying to him, look, let's treat this meeting with the respect and the honor that it's due. This is you. This is me and this is you. This, this deserves respect and it deserves honor. Slide those shoes off. 
I think the Lord's saying to him, leave the world behind. Leave the work behind. Take off that which has carried you according to this world. But I think there's something else going on here too. Because Moses was a shepherd. He was walking through the dirt and the dust of the desert of Midian. Moses had filthy feet, man. You don't want the job of washing these feet that are getting the shoes taken off here. You get that picture? They are filthy. I'd say that his feet were the filthiest, dirtiest, grungiest part of his life. And as he comes into the presence of God, when he meets with God, God says, okay, you're coming into my presence. Let's uncover the dirtiest part of your life. Moses, let's not, let's not play games here. You're coming into my presence. Show me the dirt. Show me the dirt so that I can uncover it and so that I can deal with it. You know, Jesus got his disciples together on the night that he was betrayed, the Bible tells us. And he took off his outer garment. He wrapped a cloth around his waist and he got a bowl and a pitcher and a towel and he got down on his hands and knees and he began to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter, as you know, he said, "Uh uh-uh. Everybody else, Jesus, but you ain't touching my feet. I should be washing your feet. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus said to Peter, as, as you well know, look, and unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter responded to Jesus and he said, well, then don't just wash my feet. Wash my head and my hands and everything because I want to have part with you. And Jesus spoke to Peter and he said, look, you've already been washed. I only need to clean your feet and you're good to go. It's a beautiful picture. You and I have been washed by the blood of Christ. We get the filth and the dirt of this world on our lives and we need meeting places with Jesus so that he can just deal with the dust that gets on our lives as we live in in this world. You know, when we saw in in, in Exodus chapter two that Moses killed the Egyptian, we identified in that part of the story that he went as a deliverer before he was sent as a deliverer. And now God is going to send him. And I want to read something to you from Romans chapter 10. It says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear unless someone preaches to them? Moses, remember Moses is going to go back to Egypt as a preacher. He's going to proclaim good news. God says, let my people go. It says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. How are they to preach unless they are sent? He went, now he's going to be sent. And then get this, Paul says this. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. See, Moses is being prepared to be the deliverer of God's people. He's going to bring the message of good news. He's going to go back to Egypt and he's going to say, God says, let my people go. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Moses, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. Let's deal with those dirty feet and let's prep you to be sent to be a proclaimer of good news. Now, just to ensure that there would be no confusion as to this identity of this God is who he's meeting. It says in verse six, 
angel of the Lord spoke to him and said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now look at Moses realized that he was standing in the presence of God. He hid his face. The Bible tells us that no one has ever seen God and live. You cannot look on the father and live. It's, it doesn't happen. He's a holy God. That would mean death. And so Moses, when he realizes he's having an encounter with the living God, hides his face. He doesn't want to look anymore. But we need to camp here for a moment because there's something super powerful here that's just so awesome. See, the angel of the Lord is in the midst of the fire. And the angel of the Lord is identified as God. And yet the Bible tells us no one looks on God and yet lives. And so we need to comprehend who the angel of the Lord is. This is the Lord himself. He's identified as the Lord. He's called the angel of the Lord. He speaks the word of the Lord. He receives worship. You know, in Revelation, when an angel came and delivered a message to John, John, the Bible says John fell down at his knees, on his knees to worship the angel. And the angel said, don't do it. Get up, worship God. Not this angel. Th- this angel's receiving worship. This is not an angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. It's good to take note of that because you will see the angel of the Lord many times in the Old Testament. In fact, turn with me to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. You guys there? Get through those first five books. Joshua, Judges chapter 2. Okay, verse one and two, it says this. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land I swore to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. And so here's the angel of the Lord again, appearing to the people of God. And he says, I led you out of Egypt. This is the Lord. This is God himself. The angel claims, I I brought you out of Egypt. Now, when you read the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appears to many different people. He appears to Hagar. He appears many times to Moses, to Joshua, to Gideon, to Samson's parents to name a a few places. And so who is this angel of the Lord? Any guesses? The pre-incarnate Jesus. The pre-incarnate Jesus. And that is so powerful. You know why that is so powerful? Because Jesus is the eternal God. The eternal second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus was not just a man who awoken some divine Christ consciousness within him. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the son of the living God. And he clothed his deity in human flesh and he was born of a virgin and he came to bear our sins. So let's connect the dots a little more. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 48. 
Isn't that awesome? Man, I love it. Jesus in the Old Testament, so powerful. We serve the, the eternal God. Genesis chapter 48 reads this in verses 15 and 16. This is Joseph. He's about to go the way of his fathers. Or sorry, it's Jacob. He's about to go the way of his fathers and he blesses his son Joseph and he says this in verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, long to this day, the angel whom has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and let and in the in and in them let the name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth again Jacob identifies that the Lord that there is the angel of the Lord now the word angel simply means this it means messenger which is interesting because Jesus has a title it's called the Christ Jesus Christ, it means anointed one, but inherent in that anointed one is the title, the meaning messenger, sent one, okay? And so Jesus always fulfills this role. God cannot be seen to look on the father as death. And so Jesus always plays the mediator between man and God, the son of God, Old Testament and New Testament. It's important for us to understand that it's very it's powerful. He's the eternal living God. Just because he didn't have human flesh didn't mean he didn't exist. He, he lived eternally. And so there's many places where the pre-incarnate Jesus appears on the pages of scripture the angel, as the angel of the Lord. And I love that Jesus is standing in the fire and the bush is burning but not consumed and you know lots of ideas float around out there about what that picture is but I just simply love this thought that Jesus Christ lives in me he lives in you this eternal God who's seen in, in this story and the crazy part is is that I'm not consumed for destruction but he consumes me for his glory just like the bush I'm not destroyed and yet the presence of God lives and dwells in you and I. You know, Nebuchadnezzar looked into the fire and he was astonished. He said to his counselors, did I not throw three men into that fire? And they said, uh, yeah, King, you, three, you threw three dudes into that fire. And, and Nebuchadnezzar said then, but I, I see four men. And they're walking around in that fire unbound. And one of them, the fourth man, has the appearance of the son of God. And he said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of that fire. And the Bible says they came out of that fire and their clothes did not smell like smoke. Their hair was not singed. They were not burned. And the Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped God. The burning bush. You know, in the, in the Bible, the first time that fire is seen is in, is in Genesis. When Adam and Eve are driven from the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that the Lord, to mark the entrance to the Garden of Eden and to inhibit uh, Adam and Eve from ever coming back and having access 
to the tree of the life, the Lord put a flashing sword that was burning uh, with fire to guard the entrance into the, to the garden. And this fire served as a, a barrier. It served as a barrier of a barrier of access to eternal life. It served as a barrier between earth and heaven. And in that place at the burning bush where there's fire, where there's a barrier between heaven and earth, Moses meets Jesus because Jesus is access to eternal life. You know, in Judges chapter 13, Manoah, Samson's father and his wife, they meet the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord comes to them and gives a message that a deliverer is going to be born of Manoah's wife's womb. And uh, they, offer a they offer a sacrifice. And the, the story goes that, um, that as the flame went up to heaven, that the angel of the Lord went into the flame and he ascended into heaven. It's, it's Jesus. And Manoah cried out. He thought, oh, if we've seen God, we're going to die. And his wife said, I think if God intended to kill us here, he would kill us. It was Jesus. When John saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, uh, Jesus is in his glorified state. Revelation chapter 1 describes it. It's awesome. It's an incredible account. Uh, the story goes, the account goes that John fell down at the feet of Jesus, though he was dead. But man, I thought Jesus wore cheap Birkenstock ripoffs and had dreadlocks and dressed like a hippie and wandered around the countryside of Israel. And yes, he did. Yes, he was, a, well, maybe not Birken, ripoff Birken, I don't know. He was the friend of sinners, but in his eternal glory, I will tell you this about Jesus. He incites fear. He, ins he is in the fire of God. He is the glorified son of God. Now, in verse seven, it says this. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. You know, Moses thought these were his people. He, he, he began to identify with the people of Israel. He said, these are my people and I'm going to deliver them. God says, no, let's have this equation, right? You were a somebody. Now you're a nobody. Now I can use you. These are my people. These are my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering and I have come down. Picture again of Christ to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad, broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites and the Parasites. No, that one's not there. Last one is the Jebusites. Uh, Jebusites lived in the city of Jerusalem. City of Jebu was, that's the city of Jerusalem before it was taken. It was a Canaanite city. So God says, these are my people. I've come down. I'm going to deliver them. This is my work. But when God works, the beauty of it is this. He always includes us. 
He includes human beings. He invites us into his salvation story. And he says, come and be involved with me and partake in the work of deliverance that I'm going to do. And in verse nine, it says this. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. But God said to Moses, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Verse 12, he said, but I will be with you and you shall be this. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Look, Moses has come a long ways. You can see that in this guy. He's a guy who would walk in a room and say, don't you know who I am? And now here in the presence of God, that man is gone and he's, he, he doesn't say, don't you know who I am, God? Look at my credentials. Look at my training. Don't you know who I am? What does he say? Man, I, I, I can't do this, God. You know, when Moses was a somebody, he was a man that God could not use. He was useless. Now he's a nobody and God can receive the glory. And so he can be used. And you know, in some ways you might say, well, Moses was offering up an excuse. I'm not, I'm not capable. You know, the man who was once so self-confident now has a self-esteem issue. And so what does the Lord say to Moses? Well, I suggest Moses, we send you to Egypt and you should take some courses in self-realization. I, I think you should hire a counselor and we'll like just work on your self-esteem, man. You need some confidence, dude. What the heck's your problem? You know, the Lord doesn't, you, you know, offer, hey, Moses, you're 80 years old, man. You know, you look good. Most people don't look that good for 80 years. You know, it's no psycho babble from the Lord when he sends them off. That's not what happened, okay? When Moses says, who am I? The Lord promised, I am with you. And that's powerful. See, last time I checked, when you're in any conflict and it's you plus God, you win. Uh, you know, when, when Egypt has the majority, when the world has the majority, when sin has the power, when it's you and God, you win. That's always the majority. And it's not some, you know, I don't like this kind of stuff. You probably know that about me. I don't like self-esteem crap. That leads to victory. It's God who is for us, then who can be against us, as the Bible says. The apostle Paul figured this out and he said, I glory in my weakness. I love my weakness. I rejoice in it because when I'm weak, God is strong and he makes my weakness perfect. He gets the glory. I get to be used. Weak people and a great God is the equation of victory. I'll be with you, Moses, and you will worship me. In verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and, they, and say to them, the God of my fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Well, that's really clear. Thanks Lord. And he said, say to this people of Israel, 
I am has sent me to you. So the first question Moses asked the Lord is this, who am I? That's a good question. The next question is an even better question. Who are you? Who are you, God? Who am I? And who are you? That's a good question for every man and woman and everyone to ask. Who am I and who are you? And the Lord says, I am. I am that I am. To me, that's a name that's like just shrouded in mystery. I don't think you're going to have much clarity on it after I teach through it. It's, it's mysterious. The depths of what that means are hard to plumb. It's, it's Hebrew. The verb is to be. It means God is sufficient in everything. I'm a, I am whatever you need. But technically, I thought it would be fun to just go through a little bit of this. Is that cool? So, uh, Calvin, pop that slide up for me, buddy. The top one. The name I am is called in the Bible the Tetragrammaton. Okay? Tetra is four. One, two, three, four. Four letters. Y-H-W-H. That is Hebrew, translated to English, and it means I am. Four Hebrew letters. In our English Bibles, go to the next slide for me, buddy. In our English Bibles, because we got a problem. We got an ancient language that's translated into English. And so some certain things just get confusing in translation. And so your Bible does something to try and help you understand this. In our English Bibles, the name I am is always written like the top version of Lord up there. See that? It's all capitalized all the way across. Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitalized. Whenever you see that in your Bible, it is the name of God, I am. Whenever you see it written like a normal sentence or a normal word in a sentence, it's spelled L-O-R-D, all in lowercase. It's the name of God, Adonai, which means Lord. Okay? Is that cool? You with me? Now, Next slide, dude. YHWH was the revered name of God by the people of Israel. So revered that they they chose to do this. They said, don't speak the name. Man, God's scary. Don't speak the name. You know, God never actually said, "Don't, don't say my name. But the people to honor God, and I think in some sort of superstition, never spoke the name. And so what happened is this, that over the millennia, the name of God was lost. How to pronounce his name from your lips was lost. The written form was not lost. You say, well, how can that happen? We have that in our Bible. Well, it's like this. You don't say anything funny about those letters. There's something missing. Vowels. There's no vowels because in ancient biblical Hebrew, there is no vowels. There are only consonants. If you were ancient Hebrew, you just knew when you were reading inherently where the vowels went. And over time, because the name of God was spoken and never spoken and the vowels were not included, the name was lost. Isn't that crazy? So we have God's name. It's four continents, consonants, continents, four consonants, no vowels. And because no one said it, the name is lost. And so 
The belief is that it's one of two names. Go to the next slide for us. YHWH makes Yehovah. YHWH, slide in two vowels, E and A. We say Jehovah because in Hebrew, it's a Y, Yehovah. Okay? The other option is this. Swap the vowels, A-E. Yahweh. It's kind of cool, isn't it? It's kind of cool to see this stuff. So Y-H-W-H is the name of God. And we say, well, then what the heck should we call God? What do we do? You know, we have some friends locally who really camp on that top one, right? Jehovah. They get so stuck on it. They're so hung up on it. That's why, you know, to me, it's a sign that it's not right. Bible scholars actually say it's the second one. Yahweh is the correct name is what many believe, but we'll never know until we meet with God. And so I guess the question is, well, what should we call God's name? Do we have to go back to reading Hebrew Bibles? What do we do? How do we address God? How do we talk to him? You know, Gail Irwin, who we had here a couple years ago and just ministered to us was so awesome in his book, The Father Style. He said this, if we get his name right, but we miss his nature, we violated him regardless of how smug we feel about our accuracy. See, Jesus called God what? Father, Abba, Daddy. I'd say to you this, call God your father. Call him Abba. Call him Daddy. When Mary Magdalene saw Jesus risen from the dead at the tomb, she said to him, Rabboni, which means my great master. Listen, call Jesus this, Master, Lord, Savior. Say his name, Jesus, Yahweh. Let the name of the Lord be on the lips of God's people. See, the word of God reveals that God has actually many names. And we lose this in our English Bibles. There's many compound names where God takes two things and he puts them together and and he says, this is my name. El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. El El Yon, the Lord Most High. Adonai, Lord and Master. Yahweh, Lord Jehovah. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Ra, the Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Medkodishkem, the Lord who sanctifies you. El Olam, the everlasting God. Elohim, God. Kana, jealous. His name is Jealous. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is your peace. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate and if anyone enters through me, he shall go in and out and he shall find pasture. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. 
He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the true vine. In John chapter 8, as he taught the crowds at the temple, he said this to them. He said, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. He said to the Pharisees, truly, truly, I say to you that before Abraham was, I am. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane and being prepared to go to the cross and the soldiers came to arrest him and they gathered around and they said, who is Jesus of Nazareth? The Bible says uh, that he said, I am. And they drew back and fell to the ground. See, Jesus was a common name in the first century for a Jewish male. We say, we say Jesus, which is Greek. Joshua is English. But in Hebrew, you say it Yeshua, or you say it Yehoshua, which means this, the Lord Yahweh saves. It's the name of God. And it's a name that stresses his humanity, the carpenter from Nazareth who saved us from our sins. In fact, he was named before he was born. The angel came to Mary and Joseph and said, she's going to bear a son, or to Joseph, she's going to bear a son. And you shall call his name Yehoshua, for he will save his people from their sins. See, as Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And so as the Lord and Moses have this encounter, this holy meeting, the Lord says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, Jesus Christ, your father who is, and your father who is in heaven is sufficient for every need that you have. He's the God that will be what you need him to be. He will come and he will save his people from their sins when they call in the name of Yehoshua, Jesus. And then we read in, Verse 15, the last verse, he says this. And God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up here. Why don't you guys stand with me? In a moment, we're going we're gonna to have communion. But before we do that, we want to worship God. And so this morning, I'm going to encourage you to do this. In your heart, don't leave. We're not dismissed, okay? So let's just be clear on that yet. It's appropriate that you respond. Don't leave the presence of God. People of God, we need to turn from our work and be worshipers. If you've been serving Jesus for a long time, maybe it's time for a fresh encounter with the living God. If you've never known the Lord and all you have is information, 
and it's never personally transferred to the heart and you've had an encounter with the living God, the Bible tells us that that happens through the person of Jesus Christ. That in your heart, you believe that God raised him from the dead, that he died for your sins. And with your mouth, you confess Jesus as Lord and he will come and be Lord. You'll have a personal encounter with the living God when you do that.